Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Good morning, you guys. Let's open to Revelation chapter 2. You know, really, I only have a couple verses at this point in my spiritual development in the book of Revelations that I go to because the rest of it is quite terrifying. You know, I don't know. Is that the mark of the beast? Don't take the 666. We're all going to die. Wait, that's not my theology. So let's just stay in chapter two for just a couple minutes. (laughs) And... In verse 1, it says, write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Ephesus. And if you look at the little footnote in the Passion Translation, it says, Ephesus means desirable or darling. Wow. And it's a word a Greek bridegroom would use for the girl he desired to marry. So this is Jesus writing a letter to the desirable one, the darling of his heart. For these are the words of the one who holds the seven stars firmly in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know all that you've done for me. You have worked hard and persevered. I know that you don't tolerate evil. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and proved they are not for they were imposters. I also know how you have bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name. He's making a little bit of a hero sandwich. Have you ever heard of that in brave communication? It's like, good thing, good thing, good thing. Good thing, good thing, good thing. You know, we, we can see it building. This is a lot of good stuff the church of Ephesus has been doing. I mean, I... I You have bravely endured trials. You know, in the ESV, it it says patient endurance. Anybody who's ever had to bravely endure a trial, we know the blood, sweat, and tears it takes to get that title. Patient endurance. And they worked hard. They, They were able to tell when a message other than the truth that Jesus spoke, when somebody just showed up and like Paul would say, who has bewitched you that you're taking a deep dive into a gospel of works? Who has bewitched you that you're believing your lifestyle doesn't matter in the kingdom? And he's, he's applauding the church of Ephesus. You recognized truth. You recognized when it wasn't the message of Jesus. And it's this beautiful line up of incredible attributes from the church of Ephesus. And then he says, but I have this one thing against you. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the, at the beginning. And in the footnote, its most accurate translation is you have abandoned your first love. And it means uh, the foremost, the best, the paramount, the, the supreme, the crowning, the number one love. And, you know, 
It's just not enough that we would be the people of God walking the earth, doing beautiful things for Jesus, even recognizing what is the truth and what is not the truth in a generation of a ton of confusion. That even following everything that he so brilliantly and beautifully taught while he was on the earth is not enough for a born again believer. And he had this one thing in his heart. You have abandoned first love. And you know, when the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus, you remember they said, what would you say is the most important commandment, the most supreme? And we know, we know how he responded, that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And, you know, how helpful is that to know that of everything you do with your life, that the most important thing to the heart of Jesus is your love for God. And, you know, I used to think about first love. You know, anybody ever feel your affection for Jesus? You know, we're watching over our heart with all diligence, watching over our tenderness towards Jesus, watching over our affection towards his presence. And anybody ever, you know, feel like it starts to get swallowed up by life, swallowed up by trials and tribulations? And, you know, I used to think you look back on, the season where you were most on fire for God, and that was your first love. The season where you took the most risks, where you visibly laid it all down, and this is the first love I had at the beginning. But you know, nothing in the gospel starts with you. <laughs> love. We've left the good news in the gospel. First love isn't something you stir up because we, we know in 1 John 4 that we love because he first loved us. And first love is not revisiting the season where you were the highlight of the story. You were getting out of boats, walking on water, praying for the sick, watching the dead rise up out of their grave. No, first love is the season where you realized who first loved you. It's the moment you realized, whoa, he first loved me, and now I love him. And, you know, when he makes these giant uh, calls to a company of people to love the Lord their God with all of their heart. You know, the Passion Translation puts it like this. Jesus answered him, love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart. Every passion of your heart. That this, this is the great call of the Christian life to love God with every passion of your heart. Whoa. With all the energy of your being and with every thought 
that is within you. Like that this, this is when we reduce down our greatest call in what Jesus opened up in pronouncing the good news of the gospel, that we would be people that love him with every thought in our mind, with every ounce of energy in our, in our life, with every passion of our heart. And, you know, even in the most supreme settings where we're in worship and we, are, we have one goal, just to sing songs to Jesus. I still have thoughts that run through my mind that are not every thought filled with love for Jesus, right? We all, I'm sure, have some work to do in this area. But the only way that this type of love becomes possible is when we start to live enveloped that he first loved me this way. That we actually have to take time and behold, if he's asking for this kind of love, it's only because he first loved me with every passion in his heart. We actually have to stop and we have to meditate on you loved me with every passion in your heart, with every ounce of your energy. You have gushed love over me with every thought that is within the mind of Christ. He has loved you. And, you know, when that becomes a reach, a stretch in our faith to believe the love of God is that personal, you know, I, I like to go back to Psalm 139, where King David, he's not even the, in the new covenant, and he is overwhelmed by how intentional the love of God is. And he says, it's too high. It's too lofty. I can't even reach it. That before I even was a thought in my parents' mind, that you actually took intentional time to weave together, to create from the top of my head to the tip of my toes everything that I would be, everything that I would feel, everything that I would think, that I didn't just happen on accident. And, you know, he, he says in 139, I, 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 this is one of my favorite verses. Verse 17, it says, Every, this is David talking to his God. Every single moment you are thinking of me. Whoa, like right now, God is thinking about you. Jesus is thinking about you. That the only reason you have capacity to love God with every single thought in your mind is because right now he is loving you with every single thought in his mind. Every single moment you are thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Oh God, your desires towards me are more than the grains of sand on every seashore. When I awake each morning, you're still with me. That, that this is the affection of your God towards you, whether you woke up this morning aware of it or not, whether you're thinking of him or not. 
He is cherishing you with every thought in his mind, more than the sand on the seashore. And when, when we talk about wanting to be a people that keep the main thing, the main thing, in the highs and the lows, through the twists and the turns, we've got to stick close to first love. We've got to remember the moment his love crashed into our life and we had zero percent to do with it. And, you know, one moment, I have several moments in my history with the Lord where I go back to the moments where I had no idea how loving he was. I had no idea how kind he was. I had no idea that he was cherishing me in every thought in his mind. And I'll revisit those places in my history and I'll just study the kindness in his eyes. I'll I'll study the passion that I see gushing out of his heart, not because of what I did, what I earned, but because of who he is. And one of them was I I was newly married. We'd only been married for just a little while, and I was so miserable. I thought I ruined my life. Whoa. You know, And, and all the... You know, I just lived in a, a very steady state of pain and, and depression and hopelessness. And I, I was just so desperate for a moment of hope. And I, I, would just, I would just hang on until one moment of hope would overwhelm me. And I remember, you know, we had this probably 80-year-old carpet in our living room and I was so desperate. My, I was face planted in 80 years of debris on this carpet. You know, that is how low you can go. And I was just, I had been, you know, in every way I knew how, just crying out for the Lord. And I remember his presence blew into my room in a way that I didn't even know existed. And I, I felt the love of God meet me in one of the lowest seasons of my life. And, you know, he told me things in that moment that have still been a rudder to my ship. And uh, one of them was, for me to forsake you, I would have to go all the way back to Abraham and break my promise with your father. And I couldn't believe it for me, but I could believe it for Abraham. I mean, you know, like, whoa. And I, I remember him saying, when, when you walk into the room, I see you. And I couldn't have articulated how invisible I felt even, even before a God who sees everything, you, you can read verses like this, that in every moment, the heart of God is cherishing you. That in every moment, he actually knows what you're going to say before you say it because he's so intimately aware of who you are. That actually before you sit down, he knows. And I, I remember... This deep love saturating 
places in my heart that had felt so invisible and uh, a nourishment came into my soul. And, you know, I, when I start to feel the affection of my heart for Jesus starting to wane, I go back to this place of first love where I have to remember his love is nothing you can earn or deserve ever. He loves because of who he is. He loves because it's absolutely his nature to do so. And we in turn have a, a, an Abba, Father, I love you, well up in our heart because of who he is. And, you know, we, we see this in our own natural capacity with kids. And it, it's hard for us to fathom, like David said, this type of love because God has not been created in your image. You know, yeah, like, like he, we look like him, but he doesn't look like us. Okay, like, like, I am not thinking about my children like he thinks about his children. I, I remember this one time, and I fiercely love them. They're like the love of my life, and I don't think about them every moment of every day and cherish them more than the sand on the seashore. Because I am not a well of unconditional love and acceptance. There's only one of those, and he, he, I'm not it, you know, and I remember... You know, in, in just the crazy baby toddler years, I was just sitting on the couch completely zoned out. And I don't know, a three-year-old came up to me and she's like, mom, are you thinking about me? And I, I felt instant anxiety because I'm like, do I lie and create a so-so moment? Like, what do I, 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 no, I wasn't thinking about you at all, you know? And I just remember just giving her a big hug and rerouting the question, you know? I just, I just like, I felt like I didn't violate my integrity and she still felt loved, so we, we both won. But we can't, you know? This is why we're exhorted over and over, don't lean on your own understanding. It's not just in scenarios where life doesn't make sense, where circumstances doesn't, don't make sense. It's when you come and you pull up to passages in the Bible that don't feel true because you feel invisible. You don't feel like the heart of God knows you that intimately. You don't feel like that type of cherishment from, from the very reality of heaven. And we have to pull up to the reality and the truth that he is. And we have to park and, and not lean on our own understanding. Because if you're waiting to understand before you experience the love of God, then you've left faith. It's not inauthentic to believe before you experience. It's the nature of having eyes to see. We believe and then experience opens right up to us. Like, like the only responsibility we have in the gospel is believe. <laughs> you know, when you're leading people through the Romans road, there's stuff, 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 stuff. Do you believe Jesus is the son of the living God? That's the only part you play in your salvation. 
And you know, when it comes to the love of God, you don't start believing he loves you after you feel it. You step up to the reality of who he is that is infinitely bigger than you could ever comprehend, that is infinitely bigger than you you could ever understand. And you just say, I believe. I believe you love me with this kind of love. And, you know, Jesus, and in Luke 15, all the Pharisees are, are just judging him and harassing him because he welcomes sinners. He took time for tax collectors and prostitutes, and they were just constantly disgusted that he had a value for people who sinned. <laughs> and so it says in Luke 15, he told three parables instead of just addressing them plainly. And the first parable he told was about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. You remember this? And if this shepherd lost one sheep, wouldn't, wouldn't he leave the 99 and hunt and hunt and hunt until that, that one sheep was found? And, you know, in Luke, in Luke 15, it, it says, and when the shepherd founds it, finds the sheep with exuberant joy, he raises it up and places it on his shoulders, carrying it back with cheerful delight. And he says to all of his friends, let's have a party. I lost one and now it's found. Celebrate with me. And, you know, it's just impressive to me that he noticed one was missing. Like all, there's 99 sheep that all look the same. And I, I'm like, are you counting every night? You know, because I just count to four. I count to four, and I can tell if one is missing. But if I had to count to 100 that many times a day, you know, one of my girls asked me the other day, I mean, really, where do you use math in your life? I'm like, I count to four all day long. I I've been counting to four over and over and over. And, but this is, this is the good shepherd that is aware when one sheep is missing and, you know, he's, he's painting a picture of his value for people, people who sin, people who fall short, people who have blown up their life, people who need him. And he doesn't find the one that wandered off and rebuke him. He actually lifts up the sheep and places him on his shoulder with exuberant joy. And, you know, the gospel is you realizing, I'm a sheep. I have a place in this story. Like, if, if you are a born-again believer, you have to step into these three parables. You have to see yourself as the one that he left the 99, and he pointed all of his attention, all of his affection, that he searched and searched until he saw the one that he already knew was missing. He didn't just bump into the one sheep out in the field and realize, oh, one got away, I didn't notice. <laughs> like, he's wildly aware 
of where you are right now in this moment. And first love isn't one day of rescue on the shoulders of Jesus. Isn't one day hearing the celebration over our repentance. Isn't just one day resting on the shoulders of Jesus and thinking, thank God I'm going to heaven. No, the good news is in the gospel is you never have to leave the shoulders of your shepherd. That day in and day out, we only go where he's going because we're on his shoulders. We only do what he's doing because we're on his shoulders. And we, we actually become happy Christians when we realize I've been positioned close enough to the sound of his joy for nothing in my life to ever get bigger than my God is exulting over me. My God is rejoicing over me. Zephaniah prophesied about this happy shepherd and he he said he'll be quiet in his love. He will leap and dance and spin around you with great joy. And the very heart of first love is that you woke up resting on his shoulder. That you woke up to the sound of his cheering over your unique individual life. And, you know, he goes into the next parable. And he takes it down to 10, you know, that there was a woman and she had 10 silver coins and she lost one. And wouldn't she sweep the entire house, clean everything, search high and low until she found that one coin. And then she would rejoice and she would call everybody in from the city and say, rejoice with me. I lost a coin and now it's found. And, you know, he is laying out the, the individual call of the gospel that, you know, in a, in a setting like this, you can, you can hear the message of Jesus and you can come up here and you can respond. You can raise your hand and in an instant, you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But you cannot have an intimate love relationship with Jesus in a crowd. You cannot step into an intimacy where I live aware that he knows when I'm not in the room, where I live aware he knows when I walk into the room and that he is rejoicing over me in and out of every season. You can't hear that in a crowd. And, you know, I remember when I was in school of ministry and they would say, you know, you never know if you're truly burning until you step away from this fire. You'll never know if you're just getting warm by someone else's fire until you step away from the fire and you're all alone and what's happening in your heart. And, you know, first love is all about I carry the fire in his eyes for me personally, no matter where I go, no matter who I'm with, no matter which room I walk into, that I don't need someone from the front to call out my name, my address, what I ate for breakfast this morning. Because my God already knows all of that. And when we find ourselves desperate for a drink of the love of God, we have left our portion. That, you know, Jesus promised 
you will never thirst again. You will never be stuck like a ball and chain to a physical well on planet earth. You never again have to be desperate for a drink of water, refreshing, nourishing, living water, where I feel saturated in awareness. My God knows me. My God loves me. He's intimately aware of everything I am, that you would never again have to wait for a meeting or wait for a worship service, but that you would carry the fire of bridegroom, passionate love with you in and out of every season as an unending spring of life that out of your belly would flow rivers of living water. And, you know, the third The third story he tells, he takes it down to two sons and one father. And he says, you know, it's like a father who had two sons and one of them came to him and asked for his inheritance. And the father gave it to him and he went out and just started blowing up his life and ended up with the pigs right? And he's coming back on the road. And Jesus says, the father is the happy one that's already waiting on the road for his son to come home. And he runs out to the road and he says, bring the robe, bring the ring, throw a party, kill the calf. We're going to celebrate. Just like the call to celebrate came with the coin and the sheep. Here's my boy. He was lost and now he's found. Let's celebrate. And, you know, the the story goes on where the oldest brother is out in the field. And, you know, the father is aware that that brother isn't in the house. And so many times we celebrate in the story that the father went out to the road to meet the wayward son that was coming back. But it's just as much to celebrate that the father went out to the field to find the other son. That it's not, you know, it's not less offensive that one son went wayward and the father met him on the road to celebrate that one son got pushed out into the field and the father didn't let either of the son's actions determine who he was going to be. That first love doesn't begin with you. First love doesn't begin with what do you decide to do with your life. No, first love is the father deciding who he is, who he's going to be, regardless if you're out on the road or you're out in the field. He's the father that notices when you're not in the room. He's the father that notices when you're missing. And, you know, the, the thing that I constantly revisit about this story is both the sons missed the greatest thing about living in the father's house, that the greatest thing about living in the father's house is the father, you know, and the the older brother was upset because he didn't get a ring or a robe or a party or a calf, and I've been, I've been keeping all of these things that you said were important, and he missed the beauty 
of first love. And, and the, the younger son missed the beauty of first love because they, they lost the affection of who they live with day in and day out. And, you know, the very heart of childlikeness, when Jesus says, hey, if you want to step into the reality of this kingdom, if you want to step into the reality of this wild, ridiculous love, you're going to have to become like a child. And at the very heart of childlikeness is a value for presence. It is the anchor of every little kid's life. And, you know, I have barely gone to the bathroom by myself in 13 years because of this relentless value for presence. And, you know, no child comes out of the womb wanting a robe. Like, like nobody's saying, hey, I need a ring. You know, like, like nobody's saying, celebrate me, celebrate me. No, no. Children come out of the womb looking for the one that they come from, looking for presence. And, you know, I'll never forget when my first baby was born. And the first thought was, I'm so glad that's over. The second thought was, what, what is she doing? You know, they, like, laid her on my chest, and she's, like, rooting. Everybody know what, what rooting is? And they're, like, they do this weird thing with their head where they're looking to nurse. And she's been out of the womb for like 45 seconds and has never in her entire development over the last nine months tasted milk. Not one time. She's never gotten her nourishment from milk. And yet it was wired within her to know I have what she needs. <laughs> it was wired within her to know she has what I'm designed to be nourished by. And that, and you know, inside your born again nature, that you, you were actually taken out of every place of, of darkness and lack and hopelessness. And you were born again into perfect love. Love that you didn't even know existed, that you didn't even know was available. And you have been laid on the chest of your perfect father. And it is wired within you to know he has everything I need. He has everything I will ever need for the rest of my life. And you know what? You have to be taught the lie of lack. You have to be taught the, the lie of fear that he might withhold and I might be left desperate and all alone. You, you were taught that lie. It is not wired within your born again nature. And you know, the, the beauty of this invitation into the heart of the father is a wild trust that I know that I know that I know that your presence is more than enough for everything I need. And wherever you're at in your journey right now, the most important thing isn't where you're headed. The most important thing in this moment isn't the breakthrough that you're waiting for. It, it's not, uh, oh, just around this corner when 
I'm finally set free from that thing. That, that isn't your portion to live in that type of internal atmosphere. That the greatest thing about this season of your life right now is that the Father is with you. That you live in the same house as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And tomorrow, when you turn that corner and that great thing happens and that breakthrough comes, the greatest thing will not be the breakthrough. The greatest thing will not be that, that promotion or that reconciliation or whatever promise you're hanging on to. The greatest thing will be that he is there that he will never leave you or forsake you. And this is what it means to get low like a child. And, he, you know, a, a, a couple years ago, we were surprising the kids. We were taking them to Disney World for the very first time. And we already had the bags packed and everything was ready. And everybody got up early in the morning and we just announced, we're going to Disney World right now and they were screaming and shouting and dancing and you know we're like we're like two hours into the drive and our littlest I think she was three at the time she's like so where are we going again Home Depot are we going to Home Depot I'm like no no we're not going to Home Depot and you were literally dancing in the kitchen and you thought we were going to Home Depot like you thought we were getting paint this is way different than that and way more expensive you know <laughs> but the main event in a child's perception is never where you're going the main event is I know who's going with me if we're together my joy has met its match. That all joy in the kingdom is relational. All joy in the kingdom comes from presence. And, you know, even scientifically, when, you know, you have a part of your brain that is actually wired to never have a cap on your experience of joy. Every other part of your brain can be damaged because of trauma, abuse, neglect, and, you know, scientifically without the blood of Jesus, it can never grow past that point where development was cut off. But scientifically, the part of your brain, the joy center, no matter what trauma has taken place in your life, no matter what was your normal experience of, uh, you know, I have this much joy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like way below the par of what the Bible talks about. That, that capacity for joy inside your brain, there is no lid. So the older you get, the more joyful you can become. That how much of heaven do we see in the way that you have been intentionally wired that everlasting joy will be on their heads that your joy is to be ever increasing because the primary sound of the shepherd of the one who lost the coin of the father who loved the son is rejoice with me celebrate with me smile with me travel with me in a spirit of celebration because you've been un 
love. You've been undone by the sound of his happiness that you didn't even know existed. And, you know, in, in a baby's brain, the joy center is actually activated and developed by the facial expressions from her primary caregiver's life. So you're, you actually learn joy because someone taught it to you. And it actually opened up places in your brain that were not available without their smile, without their happiness over you. And, you know, in some of our stories, you never knew joy because you never saw someone light up when you walked in the room. You never saw someone lift their head and say, oh, she's here. I'm so happy you're here. And joy is actually triggered not by things, not by more robes, better parties, but by the facial expression, by what people feel in your life when you walk in the room. And listen, your father has made sure that you would have no end to the capacity of joy within you because he is joy himself. And when you walk in the room, his entire being lights up. When, when, when he sees you, there is a smile in his face. And, you know, we in this culture are constantly celebrating God is good. God is good. He's in a good mood. Because the quality of your internal life is 100% dependent on the facial expression of your God. And if he's been scowling for 45 years, I guarantee you, you're scowling. But if you have discovered he likes me, and when I wandered off, he, he didn't punish me. He actually lifts me up off the ground, placed me on his shoulders with exuberant joy. And, you know, we're, we're all going to have mountaintop experience, valley top experience, twists and turns. But the gospel changes everything about how you travel. I no longer travel on my own. Everything cha changes when you're traveling into a valley on the shoulders of a good shepherd who is wildly happy. <laughs> you don't bypass the valley. You just change how you travel. And you have permission to need him like you needed him at first. You have permission to love him like you loved him at first. And, you know, last spring... We were getting the bikes ready, and we were, we were going to go out for a bike ride, and our, our youngest wasn't quite old enough for her own bike. So we got one of those bikes that just has one wheel, and you hook it up to the back of Justin's bike, dad's bike, you know? So she basically feels like she's riding a bike, but she's not really riding a bike, you know? And it was like some steep hills, some downs, some ups, you know, it was, some parts are scary because those golf carts are like whipping around corners and, and our eight-year-old was starting to grumble and her face was as bright as a tomato and she was dripping sweat and she's like, yeah, I'm not, this is hard. 
I don't want to do this anymore, you know? And I'm scared going down the hill. And, you know, Liberty, who's on the bike that Justin is doing all the work on without one drop of sweat coming down her face. She's just along for the ride. She's like, oh, Arabelle, it's fine. You know, when I start to get afraid, I just start saying, you're brave. You can do it. You know, when I, when I get tired, I just say, you're strong. You can do it. You can do it, Arabelle. And, and Arabelle is now rolling her eyes in the back of her head. Because they're not traveling the same, you know? And listen, you have permission to travel like you first began. To travel, all I can see is that I have a father. All that I can see is that he's worthy of my trust. All that I can see is that I know that I know that I know that he has everything that I need. And you know, the world is looking for sons and daughters to start to release their sound on the earth. That it's actually healing to a hopeless generation when the sound of sons and daughters wakes up on the earth and you know the sound of sons and daughters when you're on the back of papa's bike sounds wildly different than the sound of sons and daughters that are working really hard to get the job done and it's the sound of your laughter it's the sound of your trust that is the greatest evangelistic tool in your life because then the world lifts its weary head and says, where can I get a drink of that? Where can I get that kind of love? Because you're going down into the same valley. Your life isn't void of hard circumstances. You're going up to the same mountaintops, but you are traveling different. You are traveling full of hope, full of rest, full of peace with a sound of laughter that the world is dying to hear. So let's just all stand up. And I, I just wanted to end with one song. Turn your eyes Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.